Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content Classroom, a podcast created and produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, where we connect expert analysis on a specific topic related to social studies and then supplement that analysis with guidance from master teachers on how to apply it in the classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and we are so glad that you are joining us today. So for today's episode, we are continuing our interview with Tim Hensley, the Director of Collections at the Virginia Holocaust Museum, and Jason Nshimi, Richmond local and survivor of the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. Just a note for this episode, uh, we are focusing specifically on the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda in this episode. So if you listened to our last episode that talked about genocide in a broader sense, this one we're going to go into more depth with Rwanda as a case study. So not only is Tim going to give us sort of the overview of the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda, but Jason is also going to share his experience living in Rwanda and surviving the genocide. So just a quick note for anyone who's listening, this is obviously Jason's story. So this is going to have um, some traumatic retellings uh, in it and just a uh, content warning for any of our listeners that this is a more mature episode. So if you're using this for your class, I would definitely suggest an older secondary audience uh, if you are sharing this with any of your students. That being said, though, Jason's story is incredible. Uh, he and his wife both live in Richmond and are both survivors of the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda. And he has been really invaluable just bringing the survivor community in Richmond together um, and really founding uh, the Human Rights and Justice Foundation in Richmond, uh, and he's just an incredible activist for human rights and crime prevention. And uh, Jason and his wife, Francois, uh, and their children are all still living in Richmond today. And if you are interested in listening to a longer version of Jason's story, I would direct you to go to the Virginia Holocaust Museum's website. They do have Jason's story in depth uh, recorded on the website. So this is a abbreviated version. Um, and he was kind enough to be interviewed by me for this podcast. So that being said, I hope that this is a valuable resource to all of you. And I hope that you can all join me in thanking Jason for sharing his story with us today. So without further ado, Tim Hensley and Jason Mishimi. So I want to take us to Rwanda specifically. Uh, And Tim, I wonder, you know, if you could just give us sort of an an overview of what the Rwandan genocide looked like. I'm sorry, what the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda looked like and how that all happened, both the build up to it, um, maybe even events in 1963 that we might be less familiar with, and then also events in 1994 and after. Okay. So that's a, that's a lot of stuff to cover, but so I'll, I'll make it, I'll make it brief. I'll, I'll put it into, I'll put it into the, into the sort of the, the reader's digest version uh, to make it, to make it a little more accessible. Perfect. Um, so and I'm going to, I'm actually going to start, I'll start in, in, you know, uh, 
you know, Rwanda was is in is in Central Africa. So obviously, in um, around the turn of the century, and by the turn of the century, I mean the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s, they, you know, they become like much of Africa, they become a colony, unfortunately, uh, first to the Germans, then to the Belgians. Uh, after World War One, Germany lost, you know, uh, the countries that it had as colonies and uh, Rwanda went to the Belgians and the Belgians came in. Um, the Germans had already set up some of these practices that, that we see from the, from the Belgians. Um, but the Belgians really took it to new heights in a sense. And so what you wind up seeing is you wind up seeing a country that is really, you know, that is, that is really one people. That's one people, one ethnicity. There's one language, um, predominantly one religion, so on and so forth. Uh, so, so truly, it's one culture, and you see this sudden sharp division in that. Um, and, you know, this worked in the Belgians' favor. It allowed them to, uh, to better control the country from afar, for one thing. Um, and it allowed them to more easily exploit the country, because, you know, obviously, they wanted the country for resources, which is why the, the Germans wanted it earlier. Um, as with many countries in in um, in Africa, you know, by the by the time you get to the 1950s, you have a you have revolution taking place in 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 many African countries. Uh, Rwanda has um, a revolution which which casts off this this colonial power, um, and you have now these sharp ethnic divisions. You have the the Belgians having set up this sharp division between Tutsi and Hutu. And those, you know, those two terms existed in, in Rwanda beforehand, but they were not what the Belgians made out of them. Um, the Belgians really were trying to create this very uh, uh, ethnic split society. And so that's one of the reasons that I really appreciate this particular genocide for teachers, because I know a lot of teachers struggle with the idea of ethnicity and race and how, you know, these are social constructs. These are not, you know, ethnicity is nothing that happens in nature. They're things that we're choosing to label as, as a people, you know, that, that, that humans choose to label. Um, and this is a great example of how that happens and how it happens in a really, really terrifying way. Um, because what really within a generation between uh, Belgian control and the revolution, you have a country completely dividing itself along um, ethnic lines through no, no fault of its own. Uh, you know, it's really being forced on it. And that's what winds up setting up this entire clockwork mechanism, which leads to genocide. Uh, under independence, uh, the the Hutu are are wildly in the majority as far as you know percentage of the population. Tutsi are 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 very much the minority, and so you you really have a power keg. Not only are the Hutu in power, but the Hutu also have this running animosity um, that is that is built up over decades. Um, and really, by the time you get to the late 1980s, early, uh, right around 1990, 
you you have this true intensification of sort of radi- this radical Hutu agenda, if you will, against the Tutsi people. And that really just continues to build steam until the 19 until the until the massacres start in 1994 until the the the, the start of the 1994 genocide i just want to ask a quick question here and this this may be a, a dumb question um so forgive me if if it's stupid but i i'm curious what what did the Belgians rationalize? Like, how did they rationalize who is Hutu and who is Tutsi? Oh God! So, <laughs> okay, sorry. That's, that's that's so that's really complex. But okay. <laughs> uh, part, so so part part of the part of the issue with what the Belgians decided to do. I mean, obviously, there's a huge issue with it, but but part of the issue with what the Belgians were seeing or what they thought they were seeing was the Belgians sort of uh, wanted to assign. Now, keep in mind, this is this is the 19, you know, this is the 19 teens, 1920s, 1930s, when eugenics was becoming really the popular fad in, in science. And you have, you know, a lot of anthropologists and a lot of uh, doctors who are doing research uh, that, that are sort of eugenics-based projects. One of those basically um, is, is really what winds up sort of illustrating this whole process, because in the Belgian's mind, the Tutsi and basically had to had to conform to a more European look. They were supposed to be taller and thinner and have lighter skin and all this kind of stuff. And I always tell um, I, I always tell people that it's almost like they had the Belgians had this social experiment and it's it's like it was some kind of sick joke that it just got out of the lab. You know, because, you know, if you can imagine going into a country and deciding, well, we're just going to reclassify everybody, we're going to we're going to line everybody up and we're going to reclassify them based on what we think they should be. And and then, of course, carrying forward, it it goes through lineage. You know, your your you know, what your what your father was is 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 how your class is where you get your identification from. And of course, as Jason was mentioning with the, with the 10 stages of genocide, they do issue identification cards. Everybody has an identification card. By the time we get to 1994, you know, everybody in the country is registered. So, you know, the Hutu extremist, um, as well as you know, the, the, the uh, more radical elements who, are, who wind up leading the country after the death of Javier Romana, um, they, you know, they already know who all the Tutsis are, who all the Tutsi are. They already have lists of them. Um, they have all these government documents that they've created over, you know, over three or four decades. So everything, you know, is kind of in place. And so the catalyst was the shooting down of Javier Romana's plane um, on April 7th. And as as even 
the international newspapers reported within 45 minutes, massacres are taking place in the capital city of Kigali. Um, there was there was really no lull between his death and the extremists taking to the streets and beginning to beginning to basically go down their lists, if you will. So before we get into um, more of the actual, um, I guess, the the extermination stage of this genocide, I'm curious, um, Jason, living in Rwanda, you did you have an ID card and, you know, did it say that you were Tutsi and and did you also experience, you know, discrimination before this sort of catalyst happens um, and the shooting down of the plane and all of this was, were you feeling the tensions build um, in, in where you were in Rwanda at the time? Yes, I was in many ways um, at school. Um, all the kids, they were forced to know if their dad is a Tutsi or Hutu. So in the school record, they, they was where they, 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 they say if someone is a Tutsi or Hutus. On the student card, it was mentioned. So it was not just mentioned on an ID card, it was even mentioned in all kind of document even at, um, at the hospital where you go. So the mobilization and the preparation was done, let me say, well, because they were able to put that system in many, many places, even where you think that, you know, is the last thing you think to put those identification uh, or class classification of people. So I was feeling scared. Um, I didn't know it was gonna be genocide, of course. If I knew I was gonna even throw myself in the lake instead of, you know, <laughs> being chopped down. However, that level of of the scary or uh, of that kind of worry we had before the genocide start, it was down. And, but we could see that the, the preparation was happening and the young Hutus were going in training center and machetes um, and um, they were, you know, giving to the Hutus like daily um, and many other tools to use. So I was scared, um, but nobody knew that we were going to lose more than a million in just three months. So nobody knew the future, but again, we knew something was wrong and something big, big was happening. But mm -hmm. it was happening behind the scene and um, due to the discrimination stages, Dutis were not allowed to go in universities. They were not allowed to go in the police um, department or army. Uh, so, and they prevent us from knowing what is going on by preventing us going to those positions. 
So, and everything that they did, they did behind the scene in the high secret process um, in, until the last minute. Let me say it that way, because even some information, especially European, were able to and you know to talk to the government officials, and some they leak small information here and there. There is one um, that told the French government official that he was he was a, the president's closest friend, and um, he was in the army as well. Uh, so, but he was a high official in the country. And when the French official came, one day they were trying to request for more um, guns and the other things that they, you know, they wanted. And when the French official asked them what they were going to do, he told them that um, he was planning to kill all the Tutsis in the country. So, and this person went to the president of Rwanda that time and say, oh, you are the that told me that you're planning to kill all the Tutsis in the country. And the president say, why did he tell you that? <laughs> so, so what I'm telling you, those information was protected. And that's how uh, it was dangerous. And many people didn't know how worse was the situation until the last minute. And uh, so you, that's how I can tell you. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, even students. So even, you know, what we would consider minors in the United States are given these, these identification cards, they're on their student cards. And it's based on your patriarchal sort of lineage, like based on your father. Um, and if they are Tutsi, is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, you know, um, you just mentioned a French foreign minister who had came to Rwanda or was, or did he have a different title? Is it, um, I can get the right name, but I, um, I have the information on the French report that was released, um, like a couple weeks ago, uh, yeah. that it was just a delegation that went to Rwanda to visit and, um, talk to the government officials in those it was back in nine, before 1994. Uh, so, uh, but he, he, I believe he was in defense department in the French as well. So, and okay. uh, when he talked to them, that's what they say. And the president of Germana was so upset because they personally leaked the information that time. So uh, that's how, you know, how was was. Yeah, that sort of leads into my my next question, which Tim, you can speak to this or or Jason. I, I mean, did the rest of the world know what was going on here? Did they see these preparations? Obviously, if they're importing machete from China or other places in these massive quantities, it has to sort of you know, tip off someone's like radar. I mean, did, and I guess now, you know, I mean, maybe they didn't admit to knowing at the time, 
but now does anyone even admit to sort of recognizing what was going on um, or, and, you know, failing to do anything and to step in? Uh, yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. Uh, you know, I was, I was like many people probably here in the United States, I was watching this unfold, you know, on the nightly news. I mean, I think pretty much every night there was a report about what was going on in Rwanda. You know, it was, it was often um, not reported well. And by that, I don't mean that they weren't covering it. I mean that there was a lot of misinformation. They were, they were covering it in a slightly incorrect way. Uh, for example, by the time, um, you know, this started in April and 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 runs, you know, through the summer, basically. It runs into into August. And by the time you get to um, late June, early July, and there are all of these uh, um, uh, Rwandans who are fleeing, trying to get away from uh, the mobile killing squads, the Intera Hamwe, um, and they're fleeing and they're and they're winding up in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then suddenly the news is reporting this as a humanitarian crisis. They're, they're, you know, not only are they not reporting it as a war or civil war, which they were doing early on, which was incorrect, um, but then they shift and they start reporting it as a humanitarian crisis. And of course it is a humanitarian crisis, but it's, it's bigger than that. And so I was seeing that just through, you know, newspapers and on, on TV but the international community, when I say the international community, I mean governments particularly, uh, did have wind of what was coming even before it started. There's, there's actually a, um, a, rel a relatively famous memo, which is uh, sort of colloquially called the genocide memo, uh, which was written by uh, Romeo Dallaire. Romeo Dallaire was the force commander for a UN peacekeeping force that was uh, stationed in Rwanda. And, and now keep in mind that the, you know, the, the killings began in April of 94 and, and I believe it was in January of 94, uh, Romeo had an informant who was connected to the military who told him about this arms cache that had come in, that, that all of these arms were coming in, they were being collected in this, in this one place, which was like a warehouse, I think. And he asked the UN Security Council if he could, or his supervisors at the Security Council, if he could um, raid this cache. He thought it was good information. He trusted his source, and he suspected that this was correct, that there were, that there were all of these weapons there. And uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't allow him to, to raid the cache, and so he didn't. And... Um, and now, of course, that memo is, is fairly famous, and it's been part of many investigations that have gone on afterwards. Um, but yes, I, the, the international community, particularly when you're talking about the United Nations, the United States, France, Great Britain, uh, the, sort of all of the, the major world powers who have a role in, in, um, in monitoring these kind of events, all of them, I think, knew enough about what was going on, um, particularly as it starts to break out. It's pretty hard to miss it once it starts to break out. But I think they had enough warning even beforehand 
to know that something was about to happen. And, and certainly once the killing started, it was kind of hard to miss. It was, it was pretty obvious what was happening. Um, and, and everybody who was, who was escaping, there were, I mean, there were many reports coming out of, uh, neighboring countries, um, uh, that most of the Americans es escaped who were, who were still in the country escaped from, uh, Rwanda into Burundi. And then on uh, many of them went on into, uh, Kenya from there. And, and, you know, all of them told stories about what, what they had seen before they left the country. So I think it was, there was, there was, there was enough information both in the international community, as well as, uh, people who were actually witnessing what was happening in those early days to know, to know what was going on. So. So what's the, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry uh, to interrupt. Uh, although if you look on the, or the genocide we so far know, um, some happened months, some happened years, some happened for a long time. You can see that part of the international community and the government to delay or don't want to do anything about it. So it's common mistake. They or we the 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 people in power do because look on the each one and you will see that even the information and the time timeline that information was clear people didn't want to intervene so that's where you feel like oh so well, how this genocide started and when was it ended did anybody knew about it of course and when we talk about who knew, who didn't know, we are talking about regular people and people in power and the government agencies who are in charge of monitoring what is going on and how the money is going in and out and information and, um, and communication emails and all that. There are many, many information out there that, um, people cannot deny that they knew what is going on. And um, otherwise, if you say they didn't know, it means there is no monitoring system in the world. But when there is a monitoring system and when there is um, agencies that are in charge to follow what is going on, sure they knew. That's the bottom of it, but it happened in many genocides. We know that people refuse to intervene. And even you can't say I didn't know it was a genocide when it went on for years. So, and you can't say you didn't want you you, you didn't have a time to intervene because you could intervene even one day or two weeks. So by you let it go on and on for many days and many years. So that's where uh, there is no such thing as, oh, I didn't know. Yeah, so this is, and I'm sorry I've been dwelling on this too long, but I just, I think these are the questions that students ask, you know, as they are learning about these things. 
And so I want I want to ask them. I mean, you know, Jason, you're a survivor of this event, and you know, Tim, you're an expert on this. So why not? <laughs> why? What is the downside to these to these international organizations like the UN? who are supposedly constructed to, you know, keep peace. I mean, literally their army is called the peacekeepers. Okay. Um, and to supposedly prevent things like this from happening, what is the downside to, you know, if, if April 7th, the violence is ramping up, what is the downside to sending planes into Rwanda and dropping peacekeepers April 9th? Like, I, I don't understand, you know, with the technology that we have, the communication that we have, and the the sort of uh, the, the international organizations that we have that are supposedly working against these things, why didn't anyone step in? I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that, but I mean, it, I just, it baffles me. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> Okay, I'll try. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to. <laughs> Tim, um, I know he's an expert and he can um, go through his experience and interviews he has been doing to elaborate more on this. But is a lack of responsibility. When people refuse to act in their power so that is where i feel everything fall apart because some they say oh it's no i'm not responsible for this and i'm not responsible for that but sometimes they feel they're responsible for the other thing that has you know anything to do with them so is a choice is a choice these agencies and this government and this organization make not to do or save people or stop this killing or genocide. Otherwise, there is a power, there is a, there is a way we can stop from happening, but many uh, people in power choose not to do so. That's how I, I think, and that's how I feel about it. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a political scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I, I've, I've often seemed to come back to this idea that I, I, I feel like, you know, the, there, there is always this hesitancy um, and there, and in the United States, there's 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 a number of things probably fueling this, but but for the international community, there's always this hesitancy, which comes out of uh, this idea of state sovereignty, and that you know, it, that any any given uh, state, you know, nation state should should have the ability to sort of run themselves, so to speak. Um, and I don't know that that really the international community believe that necessarily. I think there are plenty of you know there are plenty of people in power who do not. But I think it's one of those things that is a convenient cloak for things that you know politicians don't want to deal with. 
Um, and, you know, humanitarian intervention, and particularly when you're talking about intervention in a, in a genocide, in a genocide that's ongoing, and, and that's, that's in, in the case of, of this one, for example, you know, if you're talking about like April or May, where it's really, it's really moving and it's moving rapidly, um, you know, putting, putting soldiers on the ground is, becomes this really complicated choice for a lot of politicians. I think one of the things I find interesting about this particular case is that the United States and her allies had plenty of options that don't even include uh, putting soldiers on the ground, which could have curtailed or even halted, I think, um, the genocide earlier on. It may not have halted it immediately, but it may have, you know, curtailed it somewhat. Um, but it, you know, it always seems to come back to this idea of, you know, not intervening for humanitarian causes. And that seems to be, you know, that seems to be sort of the, sort of the default for most, uh, for most, for most places, for most nations, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, I'm, I am not a political scientist either. And, you know, I just am, you know, someone who tries to grapple with these things in a classroom, you know, and I think that it's really hard. I think it's really difficult, you know, to be talking about the United States and, you know, you show that, that cartoon of, of Teddy Roosevelt, you know, where he's like straddling all of the continents and he's wearing his like police uniform. And, you know, it's the whole message is that America is an international police force with the motivation, you know, with kind of the, the, the argument on it that maybe we're a police force for, for good, you know, we're like upholding, you know, maybe democracy around the world. Right. And, but it just seems that humanitarian intervention is like a basic principle of democratic values. And so it just is so fundamentally frustrating to me. Um, and this is totally a tangent, just how, you know, the United States can see this and have a standing army, have all of the resources that we have and, you know, not really get involved. Um, Especially, you know, I can almost, even though I can't rationalize, obviously, what happened in the Holocaust, that in and of itself seemed to have more layers of conflict in terms of like our economy was so tightly bound up with Germany and our economy so tightly bound up with Europe. But Rwanda, in terms of the United States economy, even there's hardly an argument with that connection, you know? So I don't know. It's just, it's very frustrating to me. Um, and I think it's frustrating to students too, as they learn about this. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying is, um, a, we can see this happening, um, in many ways too, because we still have countries who support the wrong system and discrimination policies in other countries. And we still make the same mistake because it can crash and become another genocide. What I'm saying is, uh, 
we as a people, we have to stop supporting those bad policies and discrimination policies and um, and this, you look on the stages of genocide, you can tell this country is in the wrong path. But when we support and financiaries, um, you know, uh, put money in those policies, they have that discriminating other group of people or emphasizing or helping them in mobilization. You can tell that we haven't run from our past or our history. We're still making the same mistake. And um, so we have to come back and say, oh, did we really run from the history? Do, do, we, um, do we want to correct what mistake we did in the past? But many ways, in many times, you will see the same mistake again. and. Uh, and you will see the countries that are still in the same path. And you can tell that who is supporting those system or is just their government or even international community. So um, that's where people getting frustrated because uh, people tended to make the same mistake and at the end of it, it's right, oh, I didn't know. So, but you knew because you have seen something similar. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's the, that's the benefit of, of teaching these things in the classroom is that hopefully, you know, if our students are learning about this, I mean, maybe some of that frustration can be channeled into good things, you know, and that frustration can be channeled into them becoming passionate about humanitarian causes and doing work to help um, prevent similar instances from happening um, around the world. So I do kind of want to go back to just uh, the history aspect of things just a little bit. So we had kind of left off talking about um, the plane being shot down uh, on April 7th and Ramana, is that how you pronounce the name? Habjarimana. Okay, um, thank you. Yeah, and the plane being shot down and violence escalating after that. I, I don't want Jason to, you know, ask you to take us through the whole um, experience that you had, because I think that that's a really difficult thing for you to do. And what I'm, I mostly am curious about, and I think that I'll just give a little context for our listeners and you can correct me at any point if I get any of um, your story wrong here, but you and your family, as you mentioned, had fled to Mugonero church in an attempt to escape some of the growing tensions um, in the region, but then the compound was surrounded um, by the Hutus in April of 1994. And that was one of the worst single massacres of the genocide. And, you know, you mentioned this earlier and, you know, the trauma that you experienced from that. Um, I think, you know, what I kind of want to connect this to is how did you escape from this? Where, what happens after Mugonero? Like what, what did that look like for you? And, you know, um, how ultimately to Tim, you can 
build off of this uh, as well. Just how does how does how do things de-escalate? I guess in Rwanda as well. Okay, um, that is a very uh, good question. And um, just for date correction, the Abiyarman yeah. is the airplane was crashed on April six night. Okay, around the eight eight p.m. and and then so that is a small correction about the date so going back to the april 7th uh when we freed our houses and went to this complex uh, of course i talk about how we did before and they were able to survive and um and we were hoping to survive there again but what I can tell you, in every minute from that day of April 16th, in my face, in my eyes, someone was killed. Which means um, the Hutus stopped when going to walk and going to kill, they call it going to walk. And even those one who were believers, when they went to church on church day, they went with machetes and guns and all tools, go inside the church. And of course, no no Hutus was no no Hutus was trying to say this is the wrong thing to do. And no Tutsis was even around to be seen because we were hiding in the bushes. After the church, those in the church, they came with their pastors and every member to hunt and kill in the bushes and kill these innocent babies, men, women, old folks. So this was a horrible experience. Um, once I reached those mountain after April 16th, we organize ourselves to do like a self-defense system, like a, you know, trying to to fight the criminals and see if they could go back or leave us alone, and so we can survive that day. We attempted to use those um, self-defense mechanisms, stones and stick and everything we could find around us but it didn't work because like, they came with many guns and grenades and, and they were just killing people like crazy. So that was my life every day from morning to night. And they were coming around five in the morning and leave the area, the mountain where we were hiding and trying to run around and trying to make it hard for, for them to catch us from morning at five until 6 p.m. when sunset. So that was every day, seven days a week. And if some days they even come in the middle of the night to see if they could catch more and kill them. But what I'm trying to say is, it was about 50,000 people in those mountains where I was trying to survive. Only less than a thousand survive. So you can imagine killing that many people in that few days in one area. And I'm talking about 
the whole population lost over a million in three months, over a million. And this is um, where many people get very, very uh, frustrated is even the media try to prevent talking about it and telling the truth, like it's a small number. So um, when there is a 10 victims, the media is, is very hot. He has a, you know, he's talking about it. But when there is a million people who died and they keep quiet, somehow there is some, something wrong in there too. Yeah. Tim, did you have anything that you wanted to add about, you know, just sort of how do things, I, I'm curious as to how things de-escalate. I still um, want to ask about, I have sort of a follow-up question about just uh, the way that religion sort of played into all of this as well. But, um, and maybe that's a better place to actually follow up with it right now. So I'm sort of curious, you know, Rwanda at the time um, of the genocide is one of the most Christian nations in all of Africa. And Jason, as you mentioned, you know, this, like, these massacres are happening as people are going to church and are in churches and, you know, they're looking for asylum in these places that have been community spaces. And, you know, I think about this more in sort of the history of the United States. So, you know, enslaved people, it was discouraged for enslaved people to be taught Christianity because that that identification of religion between white people and black people would ultimately create a tie between them that would prevent them from continuing to dehumanize enslaved people, right? And I think with the Hutus and the Tutsis, I'm interested, you know, and Tem or Jason, you can sort of respond to this. How is this, how do the Hutu rationalize killing people who share their same religion? And Christianity is such a religion of community and kindness and fellowship. Yeah. Um when you talk about propaganda, mm. there is a teaching process in there too, even before the propaganda. When uh, people are told what um, who, who is, you know, who is not as human as they are. And, you know, when you look on these 10 stages, you can tell that people are convinced. And once people are convinced that they have a right to take someone else's life, and then the worst is coming. Especially when you call someone is, is a snake or something like that. In, you know, snake don't have a right to be a human, don't have a right to live. And um, uh, so all that builds up and that's where they really, uh, with genocide is a genocide because there is those stages where uh, you know people, especially the criminals, 
get to the stage where they feel like they they have all rights to take uh, other people's life and those victims don't have no rights to leave. So it goes slowly and it takes time and that's you know the bottom of it. Yeah. Um, Tim, I'm wondering if you could just take us through how do things sort of, how does the violence at least de-escalate um, within the country? I mean, so you have two, you have two primary factors that really, that really lead to this particular genocide ending. Um, the first is that the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which is um, a, a, a an army composed predominantly of uh, Tutsi who um, have essentially reformed and are are pushing. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to talk about without a map, but they're <laughs> they're kind of pushing from one side of the country to the other, and really once the RPF captures Kigali, captures the capital. Um, it sets off a, a chain of events which which really help to de-escalate the violence and sort of round up uh, what's happening. Uh, one of the things is they they you know as soon as they take uh, Kigali, they're able to um, to sort of dismantle this uh, radio apparatus that the Hutu extremists had been operating with. Um, and that, that particular, you know, those particular broadcasts were instrumental in, in fueling the Hutu extremists who, who are out in the, you know, out in the countryside. Um, and, and this, the second really is that this was, uh, you know, that this, they had even, even the extremists had sort of gotten to the point where they were, um, they were running out of people to kill. I mean, if you if you follow like a timeline of the the Tutsis who were killed during this genocide, you can tell there are these big clusters at the beginning, and that as you get into you know July, those are starting to to really thin out, and it's because they've killed so many people. Um, also, a lot of uh, Tutsi who can have been fleeing the country, obviously. Um, many of them fleeing into the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, but, you know, so you really have those two big factors at play. Um, once the once the RPF uh, take over Kigali and sort of um, overthrow, if you will, the 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 what I always refer to as the rump government, the 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 government that had taken over after Habi Romana's um, assassination. Once that happens, you really get a sort of a falling apart of the rest of the apparatus. Now, many of those perpetrators who are still out in the countryside wind up fleeing the country. They wind up uh, going into the, you know, into the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo um, to get away from what they what they perceive as you know this invading army from from the RPF, um, 
And so many of them wind up in, in, in the DRC. Um, but really that's, that's the impetus for how this sort of winds down. Um, there's, there's really not any enormous international push mm. to end it. Um, it's really just, uh, it's really just in internal mecha, um, machinations that, that bring it to a close. Jason, when did you, was there a point, um, I guess is a better way to put it. Was there ever a point where you started to feel safe in Rwanda again? I felt safe about when I reached where RPF was because uh, that's when I, you know, I, I felt like nobody was gonna kill me. Um, and by saying that, I'm trying to, to emphasize that genocide happened and nobody tried to help except the RPF that sacrificed their life to come and stop it. Uh, which is a blessing for us. And these RPF members, they were discriminated back in 1959. They survived and went out of the country, 1960s, 1970s. So they are the survivors of those small genocide before 1994. And they decide to come and stop the mass killing. So after you reach that, territory where they were controlling and, and then after they controlled the whole entire country, that I, that when I felt safe. However, a couple of days before then, um, even, you know, when they, um, yeah, before I reached that area, I was hoping that I was not gonna be killed again because we had this, what we called the zone turquoise um, that uh, happened to be there, and they really, uh, and from there, that's when I went to the RPF territory. However, the criminals, because they went and ran away from justice to Congo, and they tried to re reorganize themselves and to come back and kill more and, and finish their mission to kill all. And the sad part is those countries who supported the criminals government, they continue to support them even after the genocide. And as we speak, we have many criminals in every state, in every country. And I can tell you it's very frustrating to the survivors when you see a criminal next to your door who kill your family and you say, oh, this is a criminal, but the justice take 10 years to, <laughs> to, to stop that criminal and bring them to justice. So the, many of those criminals, they run away and they call themselves refugees in many parts of the world, but they kill a thousand and thousand. And I, can tell you some examples, but um, on this recording device or interview, uh, somehow it's uh, really uh, not necessary to do it now, but we have a thousand, a thousand people who killed many people and are everywhere. 
including in the USA, in the Europe, and the, the agencies are protecting them by not bringing them to justice even when they have their cases. So you can see how complicated this genocide and the justice is, you know, it is. And many of us, the regular people, we don't have control on those processes. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that the looking at how going back to our, our discussion earlier about comparing, you know, genocides, I think that what would be really actually beneficial is comparing how uh, the judicial proceedings of um, the, you know, the international tribunals of genocides have have occurred and looking specifically at what has happened in Rwanda and how, you know, people who have committed these incredibly heinous crimes have just, you know, gone free or at least have, it's taken years, like you said, to really um, bring them to justice um, and that many more um, have claimed refugee status in other countries and how that is extremely frustrating for uh, survivors. And so I think that, you know, that would be something, an interesting project for students to look at and to examine and to identify the flaws in those systems and then to be able to maybe come up with their own solutions as to how um, those systems could be improved so that um, judicial proceedings could actually become more effective um, around the world. Jason, I just wanted to ask, have you been back to Rwanda since you left? And do you ever, if not, do you ever see yourself going back? I was there last October. Okay. Um, we find the remaining of my wife's mom and her brother 26 years after. Mm. And we went to do the funeral service there. Uh, so it was very, um, you know, hard to go in that kind of moment and they were during the pandemic and um, all that so yeah I go there and um, yeah it's not that close to be go more often but yes mm -hmm. I go there and I love to you know to go there to to see everybody I can see Well, Jason and Tim, thank you both so much for being on this episode. It was incredibly informative. Um, Jason, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your experiences. Uh, and I just, Tim, really quickly want to turn to you. Uh, are there any projects or events that you all are working on at the Holocaust Museum right now that you'd like to mention before we leave today? So we have a pretty full schedule of educational programs, particularly workshops. As a matter of fact, I think there's one going on even while we're doing this um, podcast. Um, there's uh, a couple of things coming up that are that are probably going to be pretty big. Um, one of them is that we're going to be opening a new children's memorial in the museum. It's going to be uh, one of our new permanent exhibits. 
we're, we're in the process of updating all of our exhibits and which is going to be a very long process but that's going to be the next one to re uh, to open which will probably be sometime in mid-june um and then in August, we have Violins of Hope coming, which is a collection of Holocaust era violins, violins that survived the Holocaust. Um, and we'll have an exhibit of those in the museum, as well as we're gonna be doing some concerts um, around town. So, and I think those will be hybrid concerts. So uh, people who aren't in Richmond can certainly tune in and, and listen to them, so. Those are the two big things we have coming up probably in the next couple of months. Excellent. And Jason, I just want to thank you again so much for sharing um, with us today. Uh, I know, are you still doing um, any sort of uh, talks with students or teachers? Uh, if anyone wanted to connect with you, what would be the best place for them to reach you? Yes, I do talk and uh, make public speaking in many places. And, um, you know, my contact uh, I will give to you. Um, and uh, also we have an organization for uh, genocide survivors. Um, and it's a new organization in the USA, but it's a, it has been in place 19, since 1994, since in Europe. So it just came in, uh, in the USA about a, a couple months ago, December 19th, uh, 2020, that when, that when it was launched. So we have that uh, organization is called Evoca, which means remember. Mm -hmm. So that organization is like umbrella for genocide survivors of genocide against Tutsis in Rwanda. So that organization, uh, there is a website, you can contact survivors from that website as well and uh, have uh, survivors coming to give testimony or speak to a student um, in many parts of the state because it's, it's a, it's a nationwide organization. So we have members in a, many states. So even if the organization is not um, in Virginia, there is member in every state of this country uh, of USA. So which means um, you can have a survivors coming into your school and give a testimony or talk to the student or the teacher during the training. So we are willing to come and tell you the story and uh, hopefully it will help and uh, bring our future better than it was in the past. Excellent. So uh, yeah, and you can always go through team and get uh, my my contact at Virginia Holocaust Museum. Uh, but as for now, I don't feel comfortable giving my cell phone on social sure. media. <laughs> <laughs> but we're still gonna have it today. I'll, no, I'll send it to you soon. Okay, perfect. No, that's great. We will um, we will link that organization in our show notes, and then um, we'll provide the contact for the Virginia Holocaust Museum as well, and uh, they can continue to go through Tim to get to you, Jason. Um, and uh, that way, we don't have to uh, share all of your uh, you know most personal details on to the whole world on iTunes. 
Um, but thank you both so much again um, for speaking with me today. And listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time on Content to Classroom. Thank you.